Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm glad to just hear, I'm glad to say at the end of every reading the word of the Lord, just to be reminded. Um, to remind that we are not merely going through the motions, but we are meeting with you and that you uh, are the one who has spoken in your word and you speak through it and you alone are uh, sufficient for our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that you will bless the preaching of the word, that you will inhabit it with your spirit, um, that you will make every insufficiency sufficient uh, so that we would uh, leave here rejoicing, enjoying you, confident in your presence, and Lord, that through us, many would be blessed. It's these things we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Between 2011 and 2017, it's estimated that around 260 people died by selfie. That, that is to say that they got their phones, and in the act of, of trying to capture a memorable social media-worthy image of themselves, um, they lost their lives. Uh, for some of them, their last moments on this earth were spent attempting to capture themselves balancing precariously on the edge of a skyscraper. For others, it was in the attempt to get not only a picture of themselves, but uh, a ravenous wild animal in the, in the shot. For others, it came by attempting one-armed hang gliding. But for all of them, in, in, in the crucial moment, they were focused on nothing other than, other than themselves. And, it, and, and as such, lost sight of their surroundings uh, and their limitations that the world imposes upon us all. Now, we're continuing in Exodus this morning with a focus on this one person, Moses, uh, a man who'd spent, who spent 40 years prior to where we're picking up this morning uh, as seeing himself at the center of the frame. Uh, you might remember from Exodus 2, if you were here, or if you've read it, uh, this is the man that in the prime of life burst from Pharaoh's palace in possession of everything you would think would be required of a change agent. Position, prestige, power, uh, and a righteous mission to liberate God's people to boot. But with himself at the center and with no real clear understandings of his surroundings, everything around him fell apart to the point that he ended up not only an enemy of the state, but an antagonist to those whom he imagined uh, he would be an ally, his own people. And with nowhere to run, he goes to Midian in the middle of the desert. And what seems to us uh, to be utterly ruinous in fact, as we're tracking the story, story is becoming the stuff of redemption. Uh, we, we said last week that what looked like a fall from grace is actually the fostering of God's grace in Moses' life. And so we're picking up here uh, with Moses wandering over to Mount Horeb. Later on, this will be identified as Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain, uh, while keeping his father-in-law's uh, flocks. And it's 40 years on from when Moses first got to Midian, and the text says with some emphasis, he's still keeping the flocks of his father-in-law. Now, if you've ever seen the movie The Karate Kid, you'll remember it's a movie about a kid who's getting beat up a lot, and uh, he, he wants to protect himself. He meets this Japanese guy who he finds out is a karate master, and he says, you know, can you train me? You know, I, need to learn, I need to learn karate. 
to make my way in the world and quit getting beat up. So Mr. Miyagi agrees uh, with Daniel, agrees to train Daniel, and he, he tasks him immediately with all these tedious chores to do around his house. He's painting fences, he's sanding the decks, he's waxing cars, and he tells him, you know, this is part of your training. And you might remember from the film, you know, how Daniel's just doing this day after day, getting no feedback, doing nothing but the tedium, and finally he gets fed up and he says, you know, this is not training, this is just indentured servitude. But then he discovers that what in fact, what he thought was tedium was in fact training. Uh, it's, it's doubtful that Moses thought he was being prepared for anything, in these 40 years of shepherding his father-in-law's flock. Shepherding for your father-in-law, after all, is about the bottom of the barrel in terms of professional prestige. It's certainly um, a long way from being an Egyptian prince. It's hard work. It's repetitive. It's all-consuming. It requires endurance. It, it requires something like the stewarding of the daily humdrumness of just routine. And critically... It involves caring for something other than yourself. In this case, looking out for another man's interests above your own. In short, shepherding requires faithfulness. In fact, were we to take into account the broader teaching of the Bible, I don't think it's overstating it to say that shepherding is God's school of faithfulness for his leaders. It is. It is a requirement he requires of all his leaders, even to this day. Uh, you, you may have all kinds of other skills and gifts and talents, but if you're not a shepherd, you shouldn't be a leader in God's church. So, you know, what might seem like tedium to Moses is, in fact, training in God's school of faithfulness. And, and it's in his shepherding that he gets shepherded into an encounter with the Lord. Now, the text doesn't exactly say that the Lord appeared to Moses. You might have noticed when I read this that it says the angel of the Lord did. And to understand what that means, it's helpful to look at other places in the Bible where the angel of the Lord or the angel of God appears. And what you discover in all of those texts is this is no ordinary angel. Uh, while angels regularly appear to communicate a message for God, the angel of the Lord communicates, in fact, the full presence of God. Uh, an example of this is in Malachi 3.1, where the Lord and the angel of the Lord, those two terms are used interchangeably in saying that suddenly the Lord whom you speak, seek, the angel of the covenant whom you desire, will come to his temple. Behold, he is coming. The Lord of hosts has said it. So, Angel, in its most literal uh, rendering, just means messenger. And, and here, the Lord is the messenger of the covenant. He's communicating not merely a message, he's communicating himself. So this appearance, as one writer put it so well, is such that the angel suffers no reduction or adjustment of his full deity. Yet he is in that mode of deity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. It's important to pay attention to the fact not only that God is appearing to Moses, but critically how he's appearing to Moses. Of course, it's, it's good to be reminded that this is God, and he could have appeared to Moses in any way he wanted. He could have knocked him to the ground as a bolt of lightning. He could have surrounded him as a mist. He could have wafted into his nostrils as the delicious aroma of Cinnabon. 
which draws all to itself. <laughs> but, but, but how he, in fact, appears is as a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush in such a way that the bush was not consumed. As we'll come to see more clearly the deeper we get into Exodus, uh, he appears as fire to convey the, the essential truth that this is a holy God. Holy. And, and we begin to understand his holiness when, when we see what God urges Moses to do. He urges him, you might have noticed, to do two contradictory things. At once calling him to himself and at the same time warning him not to come too near. Right? And it, it's in that sort of wooing and warning that we have to contend with what I can only call God's otherness. That God is other. And, and I'm using that, that term with great intentionality because I don't think it's sufficient to merely say that God is different. Because when I say he's different, our brains kick into gear and then we begin to ask the next question. Different from what? Animal? Vegetable, mineral. But, but to say that God is different and not other would be to rely too much on our human powers of perception, on us defining for ourselves and figuring out, you know, what God is. And, and I've, I've quoted it here before, but Karl Barth wisely said, God is not man shouted in a louder voice. He can't be known by our powers of perception. He can only be known on his own terms by way of revelation, by way of revealing himself, because he is other. And as we're already beginning to see, his holiness, his otherness, is good, but it is not safe. Good, but not safe. In, in time, in this book, the Lord himself will say in Exodus 33 that no one can see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And, and that's borne out through, throughout the Bible that anytime anyone comes in God's presence or in the presence of someone who's been in God's presence, what, are, what, what does that person, what does that messenger always say? Don't be afraid. They fear for their lives. And, you know, I mean, I, I can just tell you with great degree of confidence that were the Lord to show up here, we would not be running to give him a hug. We would be diving under the pews. Why is that? Well, it's helpful to consider the time in the Bible before sin entered the world when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden and, and no such fear existed. But then they came to disobey God, imagining that they could stay in the garden even after they had violated his will, even after they had been told that doing such would mean their death. They were really afraid. They hid from God. They, they attempted to kind of make a life on their own, making clothing, but from God's standpoint, their disobedience necessitated banishment from the garden because it involved danger to them and the impossibility of getting back on their own terms, not just because God's being nasty, but because of God's nature. Because holiness cannot countenance sin. God's holiness is not a mood. It isn't, it's not even an attribute. It is his nature. A nature that embraces what is consistent with it, and destroys that which is not. And, you know, human beings have made great headway in mastering nature. Um, and, you know, maybe to the point where we're beginning to imagine that we're sort of above it. We're not susceptible to it, you know. But, but the reality is we still must contend with the nature of things, right? I mean, I, I spent an hour the other evening watching a, 
uh, special, a documentary on the volcanoes in Iceland. And, um, you know, I want to go to Iceland now, and I want to go see these volcanoes. Um, you know, uh, I feel drawn to the beauty, the power, their capacity um, to alter the landscape, but, but however I, warmly I may feel toward volcanoes, none of that changes what a volcano actually is. And the fact that they can only accommodate that which is consistent with their nature and consume that which is not, right? So what undoes human beings in the presence of ineffable holiness isn't just, you know, a feeling of being lowly in front of the Almighty or, or the created in front of the Creator. It is something like that full existential realization that sin doesn't comport to or conform with holiness, and knowing that demands that we see this encounter with God not only as a fearsome one, but, but in fact a gracious one. Deeply, deeply gracious. Because when God appears to Moses, what he doesn't say is, run for your life! He instead reaches out and he issues an invitation. In fact, a very personal invitation. It's significant. He calls him by name. He doesn't say, slave, over here. He says, Moses. Moses, an invitation that all the same comes with instructions, instructions to remove his sandals because the place you are standing is on holy ground. Now, there is no shortage of interpretations as to why God gives this instruction. All I can say is that even as he calls Moses into his presence, he is caring for Moses in his presence by accommodating him, by informing him of where he stands. Of, of, of accommodating him in such a way that he can stand before him and benefit from this encounter. And in fact, the Lord still does this. this. This is his way. This is his pattern with people. It in fact shapes what we do here week in and week out as we gather for worship. It, it, of course, it's not uncommon for people like you and me to decide for ourselves what we think would make for a great connection with God. Right? And, and, you know, just setting aside the fact that Scripture speaks with great specificity about how we ought to worship, and, and not only that, but millennia of church history demonstrates some clear patterns along those lines, you know, we still kind of feel like, well, maybe Sundays aren't working for me. Or maybe, you know, maybe a morning isn't my best time. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not really into gathering with other people. You know, I'd rather read or watch or listen to what I would like on my own, on my own time. Or maybe I'd rather hit the links or have a soak or take a hike or eat caramels or do a million other things that I sort of decide for myself will fill my spiritual needs. And there's nothing to despise in any of that. There's nothing wrong with any of it. All of it is good on its own. And I would even go further to say God takes great delight in us enjoying all those things. But he does give us something so much better than self-diagnosis and self-fulfillment. He's gracious not to leave us grasping after what we think we need because he actually calls us by name. He makes a way for us to be in his presence and he provides everything good to make that possible for us. That is what is going on here. So he enters in, he invites, he instructs us in his word, not not to isolate ourselves, but to gather together. 
to enjoy his rest rather than being captive to the urgency of the calendar, to sing praises, to pray, to confess our sins, to give and time, talent, treasure, to read his word, to hear it read and preach, to be fed at the table, to go out with a blessing, right? And, and much could be said about, you know, we could, we could sort of sit here and I could tell you, you know, here's all the ways that benefits us, but, you know, maybe we could step back for a minute and go, maybe one of the benef great benefits of it is, is just entrusting that the Lord loves us and provides what's best before we get to kind of how it's working for me. And I do mean not just me, but us, because very quickly we find out that the benefits being extended to Moses here are extending beyond Moses. Uh, Moses learns that this is about more than him, uh, that, that it's, it's about bringing God's people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, of course, Moses knew a little something about Egypt and the situation his people were in, and he asks, um, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Um, Moses, I think it's safe to say, is thinking of this mission that God is calling him on as not merely difficult or challenging. He's looking at it as, a, as in fact, impossible. Um, not only does he feel like he's one man against a superpower, but, you know, he's already failed spectacularly despite all the spectacular advantages he had, right? So, so when he asks, who am I? I think it's something like shorthand for, I'm actually probably the last person you should send uh, out that way. And the Lord's response is, is simple uh, but striking. I said in the first service, I'll say it again. I think we could do not only a, a sermon, but maybe a whole series of sermons on, on just his answer to Moses. And, and that answer is simply, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. See, in that answer, notice, he doesn't deny Moses' sense of inadequacy. Uh, I, I think in the most gracious way, without saying too much, he's affirming it. He affirms that, you know, Moses, you're right in knowing your weakness and remembering your failure and realizing that, in fact, this is humanly impossible, that, yeah, in fact, you probably are the last person that ought to be sent on this mission, and yet, I will be with you. I will be accomplishing everything you know is doomed for failure if I weren't with you. And the Lord doesn't just speak this assurance, he, he signifies it. Um, he does what he loves to do. He does what he does here every week. He joins uh, a sign to his word, word and sacrament. Same pattern is holding here. He, in fact, he says this very explicitly, this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, Moses knew where he was standing. He knew the geography. He knew he was out in the middle of the desert, not anywhere on the way from Egypt to Canaan, not a place anyone could ever imagine you could successfully lead a worship service with hundreds of thousands of people. And yet the Lord assures him that you will see that. You will see a gathering before the Lord in this place and they will meet with me and they will receive from me and they will worship me on this very mountain. God will bring them out of Egypt in order to bring them into worship. That's the sign. And then he tells Moses, you know, probably to comfort him, that Moses, those who sought your life in Egypt are dead. Now, that is a bit of a comfort. I mean, you know, I've never had anyone, as far as I know, of course, I've been a pastor for a while, so this probably isn't true, but, you know, um, uh, you know I've never known people who want me dead. Um, 
But I would take great comfort in knowing that if there were people who wanted me dead, that those people were dead. But, but at the same time, you know, it also spells a lot of uncertainty because, you know, who knows what he's going to find when he goes back. Uh, he's been apart from his own people for 40 years. His last encounter wasn't, wasn't with them very good. When he left, he was, he was kind of a super successful boomer Egyptian prince, and now he's coming back as an octogenarian shepherd. You know, everything has changed, and he doesn't know what he's about to get into. And it, it's, it's, in fact, at this very moment that God reminds him that, yes, while indeed everything has changed, I, I haven't. I never have, and I never will. You might, you might have noticed, this is my name forever, right? That the one speaking to him is, in fact, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the God who called Abraham to leave everything behind for an unknown destination, much like this, being assured that, in fact, I will be with you. Uh, he called Isaac to walk right into the impossible odds of death itself to discover that God does indeed provide what he promises, and he can be trusted. He, he led Jacob in such a way to, so that Jacob finally discovered what a fool he was in trying to live life by his own wits instead of trusting the promises of God. All of that's bound up in the name. He's proven faithful in the midst of human fear and failure and folly, and he is once again demonstrating his unchanging, unfaltering faithfulness to one more failed, full of folly, fearful human being. Now, we've just been through graduation season um, as a city. I've personally been through it as one of my uh, children just graduated. Of course, this um, is full of emotion. It's full of feeling. I think a lot of it with this milestone is everybody feeling the weightiness of a child leaving the home and going out into the world, you know, with, uh, without all the usual supports. And uh, it you know, um, feeling the weightiness of that. I think graduation ceremonies wisely employ or call upon people to give speeches, to uh, speak to the importance of the moment, telling the graduating class what they're about to take on. Um, And this year, you know, I I heard a graduation uh, speaker say, you know, not to worry because you possess, whether you know it or not, this graduating class, you possess magic within you. Um, So, as you go out into the world feeling the weightiness of all this, all you need to do is remember that you've got the magic and access it, right? So, you know, I just get into that because I want to notice that even as Moses says, I'm not up to this, the Lord doesn't act like a commencement speaker. He doesn't say to Moses, you know, oh, the places you'll go. And I think he doesn't say that because he loves them too much and knows him too deeply to blow off his anxieties or to dismiss the very real difficulties he is about to face. So without saying it directly, he acknowledges that, in fact, Moses does not have it in him. So he answers Moses' who am I, not, not with slogans, not with pep talks, but with the very gracious but I, with himself, so that Moses would know he's got something so much better than himself. None of us are adequate in and of ourselves. He has him. He will soon have God's people. So even as Moses admits he's not up to the job, it's almost like the Lord's going, of course you're not. I've always known that about you. 
It's why I've chosen you, because this isn't about what you can do, but about what I will do as I am with you, through you. And in fact, there's no place, you'll notice, there's no place where he promises to, at some point, make Moses adequate. He, he, he never says, you know, Moses, look, I mean, I know you feel this way now, but you are going to enter into a catalytic leadership transformation process. And, and then, you know, in time, you're going to be a great leader. And in time, you know, once you get your leadership legs under you, you'll need me a little less. He never says that. Moses is assured with his presence. He's been promised a sign that he'll see in time, and in fact, he's in the presence of a sign. There's a, there's a, there will be a sign in the future, and there's one for him right now, because the Lord is a great teacher, and great teachers know that there is never a time that they're not teaching, and great teachers don't just say, they show. So he's still standing before the Lord as a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush that isn't being consumed by that flame. Again, that's a strange sight. It caught Moses' attention. Fire needs fuel to burn, and here's a fire that doesn't need anything outside of itself to burn. It is, in it, it is very much its own life. And, and, and in that sign, God is conveying a truth about himself to Moses, uh, that, that he is life in himself, that he is sufficient in himself, that he is not in need of anything apart from himself. But there's more going on than that because, you see, this flame could have appeared in midair, could have appeared on the ground or in some other way, but it doesn't. It locates itself in the midst of maybe the most ordinary thing in the world, just a bush. And I can't help but wonder that even as Moses was coming to understand the flame as representing the holy presence of God, that he may have been looking at that bush and going, that's like me. That represents me. This ordinary thing, you know, an old shepherd shuffling around in the sand, not anything anyone would ever take notice of, and yet they're, they're together. Uh, the flame with the bush and just the way God promise, is promising to be with Moses, actually, so, so that he's with Moses fully, this, this broken, failed human being. He's not consuming him. He's not burning him up. He is, in fact, enveloping him in all of his holy, fearsome, transforming, sovereign, self-sufficient, eternal presence. You see, God promises his sufficiency in and through his own presence, and that, in fact, is everything. You see, what God is calling Moses to here is a, is a life of faith. And, and the thing about faith is you never advance beyond faith. It is, in fact, uh, the gift. It, the only calling we have is to apprehend faith more fully and it's more essential to everything. And Moses is beginning to grasp this and he, again, is thinking about his own sufficiency and he's not only think, now he's not only thinking about it in the present, he's anticipating it. So he says, okay, Lord, if I go to this people and say to them that the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me what's his name, what should I tell them? He's anticipating a question being put to him when he gets in front of God's people in Egypt. And, and he says, look, the Lord sent me. And, and then they say, oh, yeah, well, what's his name? And, and it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to contemplate because, you know, it's clear that the people knew of the Lord. They knew of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you have to wonder, what are they really asking in, in, in coming to know his name? And you might remember that we talked about names a little bit last week and about how 
uh, they function in the Bible, that they, they function as more than personal signifiers. They, they function, in fact, to tell a story. And whatever we may think of Moses' reasoning and asking the question, we learn something vital in God's answer in telling Moses to tell the people that his name is, I am who I am. Uh, this is an answer one writer described, I think, quite brilliantly as immediately relevant, satisfying, and at the same time, bafflingly enigmatic. Now, the first thing that hits you about the divine name is what I can only call the, the, the isness of it, that the Lord is. Full stop. Uh, the Hebrew language captures this beautifully in that I am indicates not just existence, but active presence. It's, it's to say that, that God's not just sort of there, like, you know, like this piano's there, but that he is there livingly, actively, personally, in such a way that he can't be understood as in any way extra to anything, but as essential to everything. And that means that when he tells Moses, I will be with you, that's not the stuff of God as my co-pilot. It means that he is with him as essential to all things, meeting insufficiency with omnisufficiency, meeting incompetence with omnicompetence, meeting weakness with strength, so that the God of the flame, requiring nothing outside of himself, burning with superabundant vitality, is present and active and, and enveloping everything we need, not because he's invoked or invited, but because he is. And, you know, I, as you might imagine, I've been kind of wrestling with this passage this week because we're, you know, I'm beyond my death. Um, and and this, what I'm about to say is going to sound kind of painfully obvious, but, but this is the best I can do. Uh, God's name communicates that he is, in fact, God. Not man shouted in a louder voice, not subject to our agenda, but spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, as it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And again, I, I don't want to overlook that, that there is such grace in God revealing him, himself to us in the truth of who he is, because there is nothing that is more harmful to a human being, to the human heart, to the whole human enterprise than to take the posture that there is nothing greater or higher or more powerful or wise than me or us. No hell below us, above us only sky, right? As John Lennon said. So even as God condescends making himself known to mortals, it is a good and right and appropriate response to, you know, pretty regularly just cover, cover the mouth, to know that there is a God and I am not he. Among the greatest gifts one can receive in this life is that knowing that the Lord alone is God, that he is in full possession of divinity, that the divine prerogative is his alone to the end that we might come into possession of this great liberating grace of giving up on our own God-likeness. Uh, or of giving God-like honor to that which is not God. I don't know about you, but me trying to be my own God is the most exhausting thing about my life. Because he and he alone is, I am that I am. So Moses is assured that that, that, that God, the one true eternal and living God, will be with him and that that is the greatest of all gifts.
so that even as God is with you, it doesn't mean that, that we're free from struggle, that we're free from challenges. I'm going to give you a little preview. God, uh, Moses is going to return to Egypt, and Israel is going to accept him, and he's going to go to Pharaoh, and he's going to demand that his people let him go. And the immediate result of that will be harder labor for his people, beatings, the terrible conflict with his people. And all of this will drive Moses crazy to the point where he will go back to God and complain that things have gone from bad to worse. And, you know, all of this is because I had to utter the divine name. Moses uh, will come to wrestle, as we all do, through that tension that we talked about last week between the promises of God and the reality of my present circumstances, of knowing that, that even as God is with me and present, and, and uh, that, that, you know, that's true even as things don't feel like they're getting better. He'll struggle, as so many of us have and maybe as some of us are right now, with wanting what we imagine to be better than God's presence. He'll, he'll want, as many of us do, as I do pretty much every day more than anything of the, in the world, that my expectations will be fulfilled in such a way that, and at such a time as I, as I would like, right? He'll struggle to remember and embrace and believe in something that sounds so simple but eludes us all the time, and that is God's name, God's nature. I am who I am, that that, in fact, is the gift. You see, knowing God and knowing his name is the great privilege. It's a wonder, wondrous revelation, but, but again, it's not exactly safe because he does not cede the divine prerogative. He will remain God. And to put your faith in him is, is not to have all your expectations fulfilled. It's, it's actually better than that. It is to be given the grace, the gift to enter into his presence and to enjoy him. To go through those circumstances and know that, in fact, there's never a time that God's not loving me and I may not understand it now. I may not be able to, as Charles Spurgeon said, trust his hand, trace his hand, but I can trust his heart. And that same God who came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Moses has come to us. The same God who appeared in flame came to be incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, undiminished in holiness and power, condescending to graciously and fully accommodate a failed and fallen people to the end that we might be fully brought in, making the way in for us by taking the frailty of our failed humanity upon himself, earning, earning a righteousness before the Lord where, where our righteousness was nothing but a ruin, enduring a holy incineration for sin that should have consumed us, but instead standing in that place for us to the end that he was raised to newness of life, that for those who turn from self at the center of the frame to the Savior, that we might receive a full acceptance of sons and daughters by faith in him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, we thank you uh, that you reveal yourself to us, that you do not merely reveal, but you invite, and that you not merely invite, but that you, in fact, give um, with great divine generosity, not merely gifts, but yourself. Lord, what a, what a promise to know that, uh, that you, the great God, the great and eternal God, I am who I am, is with us. 
with us even now. Uh, Lord, we take great heart. We're greatly heartened to know that um, we are benefiting from your presence, that you are with us even to the end of the age. And as you, as you prepare us to come to this table, Lord, would you attend to our hearts and remind us that against all expectations, we don't come to this table um, you know, uh, with resolutions, with sacrifices, with things, you know, with, with fuel to throw on the holy fire, uh, with the hope that it would keep burning for us. But instead, we come uh, to receive because all has been given. We come, um, Lord, in faith and with full acceptance as sons and daughters of the living God because it is in your character it is in the deep, mysterious depths of your grace uh, to have made provision for us to be with you and you to be with us, even living in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come, we would come with faith, uh, that, um, that we would uh, know that whatever the circumstances, we have a Savior, and that we would eat and drink knowing that this is a, just a foretaste of where we're headed as pilgrims, as those who journey in this life, that, we, that the day is coming when, Jesus, you will return and you will wipe every tear from every eye and sin will be no more. And we will sit at your table and dine on the richest affair with our Savior. So, Lord, thank you for this foretaste. Thank you for sustaining us now. Uh, meet us at this table and feed us here. In Jesus' name, amen.